Hello, I'm Terry Patar. I lead the Jane's Intelligence Unit. Welcome to this episode of the Jane's World of Intelligence podcast. I'm joined on this episode by my colleague, Davey Gibeon, who's our head of innovation at Jane's. Hi, Davey. Hey, Terry. We're also joined by Tyler Sweat, who is somebody who's got a lot of experience working in the tech sector and has previous military experience. And we're going to be bringing that together to talk a little bit about what that means now, what it means for the future and what implications it has for defense intelligence. So, Tyler, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you on the on the, on the podcast. Uh, thanks a lot, Terry and Davey. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. I've probably not done you justice at all without a quick introduction. So it'd be great to get an idea from you of your background and uh, the current uh, you know, company you're involved in and um, some of the work you're, you're doing right now so that we can get an idea of some of the context of this conversation and the discussion we're going to have. And, and then we'll, we'll go on from there. Absolutely. Um, so I started my career in the, in the U.S. Army, um, all focused on counter explosives, um, was the recipient of a whole bunch of supposedly cutting edge technology while I was deployed. And, and what I found is while a lot of stuff came over, very little, if any of it was actually useful. Um, so when I transitioned out, sort of made it a mission to figure out what does that chain look like? How do, how do people buy technology? How do we program the funding for it? How are we setting priorities on organizations that are building or investing in it? Um, from up at the large sort of heads of government sort of labs and science and technology departments, all the way down to that entrepreneur who's trying to pitch a venture capitalist on funding. Um, and then once once I sort of figured that out, it's been about how do we transition it quicker? So how do we get the right technology to the right warfighters hands you know, in time for it to be useful? Um, and that's the mission of Second Front Systems where I'm currently at. Um, we focus on what we call acquisition warfare. Because um, the belief is that the next war is going to be won by the entity that can optimize that loop on finding, on procuring, and on integrating technology quicker, with greater precision, and with lower cost, while imposing effects on that sort of the technology OODA loop, if you will, of our adversaries. I mean, in terms of the questions you were asking there, you know, how does that, how do those technological developments get into the hands of warfighters? And, and the, just those de- the detailed questions and systematic questions you were going through then, it made me think you must have had some some pretty deep frustration at the time <laughs> to, to be thinking, you know, to, to want to go through that process, wanted to dig into, you know, to want to really dig into military procurement in that way. Um, you know, that's that's driven by some frustration there, which uh, it sounds like you've tried to go on to 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 do more more with that, and I think it's a a concept that I want to unpack a bit more in terms of what you're saying there in terms of what's coming next. So the work you're doing with, with second front and uh, the work you've done up to now, uh, and then what you're saying is coming next, that we have to be much quicker or whoever is going to be much quicker at, at speeding up that loop is going to have that advantage. So maybe give us an example. What do you think? How do you think that that plays out? Yeah. Um, it's, it's a really good question. And it's, I think it represents, one of the one of the biggest transformations that's required to get large governments better synchronized with commercial industry. So if you think about, you know, traditional commercial software, you know, software as a service, you build that back end, you build the infrastructure and you really build it once and then you can sell it or customize it for different use cases a whole bunch of times. Now flip that on its head and the government We'll build something once, highly customized. And then if they need something that's just a little bit different, 
They will rebuild the entire thing again, highly customized. So, you know, right now in U.S. government major defense acquisition programs, I think you've got upwards of 72 percent custom code in the software, custom software developed, which for anybody who's listening, who understands how tech is built and scaled and improved, that, that does not bode well for speed. And then you start to think about interoperability with allies, right? Because nobody goes to war alone. None of this is a, is a one-on-one type of a conflict. So the same way historically we've thought about the need to have similar baselines in terms of like ammunition caliber, for example. We've got to start to think about that with software guard, software guardrails and code base. Uh, but that is, that is, I think, one of the largest barriers where you have an industrial age approach to major platforms and technology coming out of the government. And you have the rest of the world moving in more of a knowledge age in a more agile approach. Um, and that lack of synchronization causes quite a bit of friction. In terms of that approach and how that's changing and the difference there you described, I mean, is is a lot of it driven by that kind of continuing mentality of, the you know, we've got to we've got to be able to do this for ourselves. We can't rely on others to do it for us because they don't want people to come in from outside to do that for them because of security reasons. Or, you know, is that still part of the mentality behind it in terms of the reluctance sometimes to to outsource more effectively, if that makes sense? It, it does make sense. I think it's a combination of things. Um, I think one, it's way easier. So you think about the whole, the whole sort of buying chain, right? All the way up to Congress and all the way down to that procurement officer who signs the contract. It's way easier to, to picture sort of what you're doing and what you're trying to build. If you've got this, highly, you know, rigid, very well-defined, scheduled out. Here's the widget, the thing we're going to build. You can reach out and touch it. When you're thinking about, hey, I'm not really going to have requirements for this. It's going to be agile. It's going to sort of change. Oh, and we're going to let the users define what this looks like. That just doesn't fit into the paradigm that so many folks have come up through and understand and then, you know, if, if we're being honest, we, we start to think about the F-35 as a great example, right? It's built. There's some part of that built in, I think, every congressional district in America, <laughs> which, again, probably makes voters happy. But for folks who understand supply chains, it, it's chaos. And it, it just creates such a large attack surface that's just inevitably going to result in delays. So I think it's. It's I keep going back to industrial era, like when we were, you know, long factory lines and when the power was the person who saw all the information and controlled it. It goes back to sort of outdated uh, perspectives on control, where if I define this and I set the schedule and I control the budget, I'm in control versus the new sort of paradigm of if I set conditions for success and let it go and let it change and don't control it and just bring the right people together. Um, that That's where I think we, we get a massive breakdown. Um, and there's a tech literacy problem um, across mm. government where there's a lot of buzzwords. And I mean, Davey and I have seen it with, with artificial intelligence, right? It's a sprinkle some AI <laughs> on it and, and you'll fix it. And 
it doesn't work like that. <laughs> I, I can see that. I mean, that's that's certainly been my experience outside of the U.S. in the sense yeah. that. You know, one of the massive frustrations, just as an example, you know, we, we often are delivering uh, intelligence tra- analysis training, usually around open source intelligence. And with open source intelligence, although it's called intelligence and it's part of the intelligence um, sphere, it, it's really focused on information collection for most customers. When they think of open source intelligence, that's actually what they're thinking about. And um, they become so kind of uh, technology dependent and so kind of hardware bound rather than thinking about it as an as a sort of an information or an intelligence problem it becomes a it becomes a technology problem and they overcomplicate it uh, i often find yeah. and i don't know if that's replicated in the us or if that's something you guys have seen but um it strikes me that yeah that that sort of lack of tech lit- literacy that you mentioned is is universal yeah I, I i would agree and i think that's how you end up with you know the highly customized software which then if you're thinking about it from a smart buyer standpoint, it results in vendor lock, right? There's only one person who can probably come in and fix that, which while it may feel secure, if I were to take an adversarial look at that, it shows me one point I need to penetrate versus, you know, a broader open source community that's got thing that's got different sets of eyes and that's getting run through different sort of de-risking and control where, if I want to compromise a major weapon system, I, I got to get inside one team and one entity. And the software's probably three years out of date. So, <laughs> so, so it's probably not secure. So, but yeah, I, I, I would agree. I also end up seeing that the lack of tech literacy limits the possibility as well, because people aren't very good at future scoping. And so when they think, at, okay, what is my problem today? Versus what is the technology I know? And there's a mismatch there where they, so the answer, especially in, in open source intelligence tends to be, well, just collect all of it, which doesn't really make a lot of sense um, and just adds to complexities down the line. And then a kind of a lack of usable open source intelligence as well and a lack of context around what you're creating. But that also, yeah, when it comes to, to artificial intelligence, it tends to be the same. It's, well, just give me the, click button, you know, kill terrorists. Why can't the AI do that? The lack of tech literacy means people are making these illogical leaps between what they want to see as the end state and what they think technology should be doing, as opposed to not only working within the bounds, because I, I don't think we have to do that. We can we can build the future as well. But they have to understand, you know, what are the actual capabilities here and then be able to kind of craft with the developer or craft with the the the, uh, the company what that solution looks like from a user-based perspective. So I think it, the, the limitation in technological sophistication at, at, across the government ends up, we, we look for silver bullets when, when none really exist. You talk about sort of the failure of imagination that I think you both got at, which is, you know, a massive, a massive limitation. And I think that to, to your point earlier, Terry, that that's why we default to things we understand. And we spend billions of dollars on big platforms. Um, you know, the Navy is a great example here in the U.S., right? Instead of building a bunch of, you know, highly attributable sort of fast boats or drones, we're building a whole bunch of aircraft carriers. And now I am not a Navy guy and I often make fun of the Navy. But I have yet to see a situation or any type of future scenario that's 
the sort of technological advantage is going to be a very slow, very high signature producing floating city versus a technology capability. Um, and I think that's to Davy's point. Then we try to, we try to just throw technology on these platforms without thinking about what types of environments are we going to moving in? What does A2AD actually mean in practice? And what are adversarial capabilities? I think that's, yeah, that's really interesting. That, like you said, the, the failure of imagination, the lack of tech literacy, um, and the, the I guess that that inability to switch from just being just having that one procurement mindset to something which needs to be more flexible for you know the, the current era and uh, let alone before we get into the future, you know what that's going to be like. Um, but you know, to what extent is that lack of tech literacy though down to customers in the defence sector or customers in the government? being bamboozled by the offerings that are out there you know by the technology companies by you know solutions that look like they are silver bullets but turn out not to be um because you've probably seen that right i mean that that happens a lot too yeah no it's um i mean Davey and i have been in a, a few meetings together where we made the joke that you know artificial intelligence is on powerpoint and machine learnings in python and that that that's sort of how you can tell the difference but i mean being honest about it, I think it's it's two sides, right? You have a you have that sort of smoke and mirrors, you know, the the snake oil salesman that you know is calling things AI or advanced technology when it really isn't. Um, so you've got some buyer's remorse of people who've made large investments um, and maybe haven't seen it, um, and that could be from snake oil or it could be from the tech literacy where there's just misaligned expectations. Um, on the other side of that. You've got a pretty heavily entrenched defense industrial base that's been attached to these programs on, right? The benefit of building a large platform that is, you know, highly inflexible procurement and takes decades to build and billions of dollars is there's probably a 20 year O&M or sustainment contract behind that. So you have a very interested party in having minimal change to the business model. So anytime someone will want to come in, that team that's really sitting there on that program of record or that program executive office, the contractor is whispering, no, we can do this. We can do this. We can do this here. Here's my team of 50 analysts. or Here's my team of, you know, my cube farm of people. You don't need to build technology for that. So you've got that coming from both sides and it almost starts to build the bias of, or reinforce the bias of we can do this ourselves. And I think it makes the, it makes the buyers a little more shy um, because they don't want to rock the boat, right? The incentives for those folks right now are to spend their budget and get more budget, not to innovate, not to generate effects, not to save money, to spend the budget. Um, and that's where you get into sort of the Pavlovian problem of why the market is the way it is. So I think one thing, that's very true when it comes to problems with defense acquisition, especially of, of next-gen products or capabilities, is that the problem is, is fractal. We can probably investigate this problem space all day, just from procurement to the education to the incentives to, you know, the long-term in- of incentives of staying in government versus removing yourself to the private sector. You know, you, there's a podcast in each one of those fractal uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. diggings that Definitely. we can go down. But let's, I mean, I, I do want, Tyler, because you're focused on it these days. 
what is the bridge? Because there, there are a couple macro kind of um, uh, Schrodinger's X. We're in the Schrodinger technology. Yeah, so, for example, when it comes to government, at this on one hand, the you know the Silicon Valley hates working with the DoD. At the same time, we see massive Silicon Valley companies competing for massive DoD contracts. Um, the DoD is behind in um, technology. At the same time, we have the F-35 and other, you know, very sophisticated, uh, you know, supercomputers that fly. You know, there are these there are these competing narratives at all times sure. between what is happening in technology and what is happening. Um, so, so I have two primary questions for you that we can dig into. One is, are we in? What side of the Schrodinger's uh, technology are we on? Is the DOD fully failing or is it just that it's a narrative problem? And then two, you know, if there are gaps or where gaps exist between the technology sector and, and um, government, what are practical methodologies through which we can bridge those gaps? Yeah. Um, I mean, to stay on brand with the Schrodinger answer, I don't think we'll know. Until we open the box. Like it, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I'll, I'll joke. That's, that's fair. <laughs> you, need the, you need the observer. <laughs> but the, the, I think the, the big challenge is, can we scale, right? I keep, I keep going back to scale. So, you know, whether it's an F-35, right, whether it's ABMS or JADC2 or sort of all these new innovations we have going on, um, I want to see the scale because on the same other side, you know, we've got all these new sort of acquisition pipelines like SBIRs and OTAs and stuff like that. And there's hundreds of millions of dollars going into there, which sends a very good initial signal. But if you start to parse out, you know, some of the are these technologies transitioning and are they coming into programs of record or systems of record? all of a sudden that number starts to go way, way, way down. Um, So the question becomes sort of, is it at the risk of of sounding pejorative, like, is it vanity? Or are we actually doing it? Um, And I I don't know the answer to that. And I don't think we will until we're forced to prove it um, on more than just a PowerPoint slide. Mm -hmm. Um, From sort of the competing narratives, I I see the Valley wanting increasingly to work with the Department of Defense. Um, I think it's, it's, you know, in vogue to say, Hey, there's this massive divide because there's been a couple public blowups. Um, but I mean, you can't walk 10 feet in the Pentagon right now without seeing folks with hoodies and ripped jeans walking around trying to keep looking like they're in the Valley coffee shop just to make sure they don't lose the image. Um, so what's happening from a, to get to your second question, right, from a practical standpoint, um, there are a number of barriers to scale that where, as you take the, the perspective of the venture capitalist or of the startup, um, I think they, I think they cause folks to, to self-select out of the process, right? And that's things like, you know, burdensome cybersecurity requirements that aren't really aligned with what's going on today and also just cost a significant amount of money and time to go do. So if you're 
if you're a startup, are you going to invest, you know, millions of dollars in achieving some certification on the hope of maybe getting some money? Um, I have not met many venture capitalists that would be comfortable investing that much money and going to get a certification so that we could then go hunt in a market without achieving the sort of product market fit and the customer stickiness and all of that. Um, the authority to operate, um, how you actually get your software into production in a customer environment is so complex that if you go to three or four different digital warfare offices in the government, they will give you three or four different answers. And increasingly, they will tell you not to use their own solution because it's so complicated. So then you end up with another process that you can't really time box. You can't tell me how much it's going to cost. Uh, and it usually requires some reconfiguring of whatever the commercial technology is. Um, so those two, I think, are the, the lowest hanging fruit. And then it's that, you know, as I alluded to earlier, it's that acquisition pathway. So what's my path to transition? If I can understand a path to transition, then I've got a way to, to bring enabling support in, to think about how to actually scale the technology. Um, but right now, I think the there's a desynchronized, right? The, the Department of Defense and the government says, hey, you know, we're giving these grants out. We're investing in technology. It's great. We're connecting with the market. And then the market sees, hey, this is interesting. But in order to build a government prototype, I have to configure a whole bunch of stuff, which is time, which is money, which is focus off primary product development. And then it's probably going to take me four or five years to figure out even how it gets into a program. Um, and that's fighting the, the folks who are already entrenched in the program. That's understanding, you know, some of the congressional funding and the procurement challenges. Um, and it's making sure that, you know, someone doesn't grab your IP along the way. So if you asked me to pick, it'd be the ATO would be the biggest one. I think that's a silly problem to have. With, with those, those issues in mind, you know, if we going, if we go sort of and take a, an almost a blank sheet of paper, perspective on it is the current system set up to help solve the problems that exist in terms of you know what are what are the problems right now that technology solutions are well geared to solve that aren't being where they're not being used versus actually what are the problems where they you know the the kind of solutions that are out there that are available that are not being used in government um or that, that sorry that are perhaps being used um but are being used in the wrong way um, where you, you know, as you described, uh, the procurements haven't been done correctly, and maybe, uh, maybe people are buying or, or trying to do things themselves, which actually are com- uh, uh, fairly commoditized, which they could buy in. Um, so, you know, where is that kind of mismatch between what, what's actually needed versus what's available out there? And I think it speaks a little bit to what you sort of mentioned earlier, that failure of imagination. Are there sort of technologies available now that? Um, defense needs to be thinking about that it's not already thinking about and i know i know it's kind of and davy i mean i think you made a great point in terms of actually there's a lot going on that it's easy to get caught up on the actually they're behind the curve but actually they're not you know there's a lot going on within defense which is at the cutting edge right well i'd almost i'd i'd want to take an even even pokier question for, for <laughs> which is can will this problem be solved without a war 
No. Because I think, I, I, think I think the, the challenges we're going to have to realize we're in the war. That's the question. Oh. Will we know we're in a war? Okay. Because I, I completely agree with you. Where I think ATO problems on new technology adoption, whether that's a new piece of hardware um, or hardware software integration, you know, a new um, UAS capability or a new cyber tool, a new artificial intelligence, you know, widget. Um, all of those get solved if there's a practical or tactical or operational um, reason to suddenly deploy that technology. So I, I fully agree. Now, let me poke you on that. What what will war look like in the future if we don't know that it's a war? What what are what is your fear or what will you get hinting at when it comes to uh, when it comes to not knowing if we're in, in conflict? Yeah. So I will try to make this not like a theoretical sort of debate. I think we've we've struggled with things that aren't kinetic for as, as long as I've been in any way related to sort of national security. So we're going on, you know, 20 years at this point. Things like, you know, unrestricted warfare when it was written, I don't know, what, 30 years ago at this point? And thinking about intellectual property and non-kinetic effects and, you know, commercial espionage um, and things like that. I think if you went around, you know, and I include the UK, our partners here, and we had a, a robust discussion on trying to define war. You'd either end up at like the simple Clausewitzian definition that just encompasses everything, or there'd be a really big argument of where are the boundaries and what is, what is warfare, right? We used to explore all the time. If, if I'm a, an external party and I hack Boeing or Raytheon or BAE, is that an act of war? Is that an act of commercial espionage? Is that just a, a phishing and it's a criminal act? What is that and where does that fall? Because I mean, I could make an argument that we're in a war right now and we just we're not paying attention to it because it's hard to, to paint a picture of it. I think that's what that's what scares me the most is that by the time we realize it'll be too late. I spent like two years at Toffler going down this rabbit hole and like arguing with big service strategists on, you know, what advanced technology and warfare means. And for me, the easiest part is the kinetic side of it. It's everything else. Mm -hmm. And that's the part that everybody struggles with because you can't see it. You can't touch it. You can't smell it. You can't hear it. Is it the case that we'll only feel the effects of it after it's happened? Well, so and this I think some of this goes back to the literacy, right? This is why education is so important. And this is why education at a practical, at like an, a readily consumable level is so important for leaders across all of our nations. You know, those in, you know, the respective chambers who are setting laws and regulations and allocating funding, those in, you know, different executive branch and heads of state have to understand what all of this means that, hey, it's it's not about a bomb got dropped. You know, maybe it's about I mean, we're years past it now, but like when Russia shut down the power in Georgia, things mm-hmm. like that. That hey, OK, like that, that was science fiction before then. And we talked about it and nobody thought things like that were real. Um, so I think there, there's an education on how this all fits together and what it means that we've got to get into. And then I think it's it's an understanding of the tech literacy where 
it's not purely like a preventative measure. Most of those technologies that would increase resiliency of critical infrastructure will also allow us to scale the effects of service delivery from a government standpoint, right? It's, it's not sort of a different widget all the way across. It's thinking about it with sort of that integrated backbone where we've got information sharing, and then you can sprinkle some AI on it after that because you've actually got the data flow in the right way. Um, so that's where I think, you know, if, if I had a hope on how we sort of wrap around it, um, there's a high amount of education. Um, there's, there's some legislative work that has to occur. I mean, if, if we're being, a lot of these behaviors are reinforced or incentivized by how you're allocated funding, um, at a national, at a service level. Um, so I think that that's an area to push. Um, and while I do believe that a significant event will be what changes this, um, I think if, especially if that is the case, the education is so much more important. So we don't overcorrect like post 9-11 where everything overcorrected to one side of the spectrum. And I, I, I spent a lot of time over there. Like we don't have too much to show for it. We learned a lot, I think. Um, but if this, if this next one has the ability to be at scale, where technology allows us to reach around the globe just from a click on our computer, how much more important is understanding how to sort of oscillate the different focus levers there? And that's where I think the Valley can help a lot. And that's where I think commercial industry can help a lot because you're starting to think about scale and reach and the ability to generate insights. And, you know, the fact that right now, when we send a soldier to war, they have more technology in their pocket with their iPhone than in the entire platform we send with them, their entire weapon system. There's more tech. In the $1,400, I think that's the cost of the new one, in the $1,400 phone versus, right, the probably $14 billion ecosystem that they're delivering effects in. And that, I mean, that, that can't, that's one, it's not sustainable from an investment standpoint. And two, that should never be the case. Like, that's just a terrible way to send people to war. I mean, it's been, a, been the case for a while, I guess, in terms of, like you said, the device in somebody's pocket when they go to war being more powerful, being more useful to them, having more utility than all of those more expensive items they're sent with. But also, I mean, it's a vulnerability, right? If people are taking uh, an always connected device into into a, a war zone with them. But is that something that is, is just inevitable? I mean, that's just a risk that's always going to be need to be catered for because you're not going to stop. You're not going to stop warfighters taking electronic devices in because they need them. Right. Yeah, I think it's a balance, right? And this this yeah. is a, a never-ending sort of conversation. Like, what's the balance between access and security? And how do we get data to decision? And, you know, where are we willing to accept a risk? Saying, hey, it's just more important that we get this insight at the right time. And where are areas we can't? Because there are also commercial solutions for, you know, low bandwidth, low latency type, where you can bring, you know, petabytes of data out to the edge, and you can run models locally on stuff. Um, and then there, there are situations where I think it's perfectly appropriate to be having just commercial tech out there. And again, it's about getting the right answer. I mean, in Afghanistan in 2008, 2009, the locals out in the East understood what was going on in American politics better than I did because they just Googled it. 
<laughs> and they'd be like, your president said this. And I'd be like, hey, that's news to me, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I th- that's definitely not going to change, is it? I mean, in terms of access to information now being a much more um, open, I won't say level playing field, but an open playing field in the sense that everyone's going to have access to, to the kind of information that in the past, you know, they wouldn't have had and they'll have more sophisticated abilities to do more with that information. Mm-hmm. Um, but just coming back to, you know, what you were, you sort of described at the outset when you talked about being in that situation where, you know, as somebody who's on the front line, you, you're conscious that you're not being supplied with the right technology and there's a gap, you know, between what's available, what's the right solution for you or what, what would give you better capabilities and, and the fact that you're not getting it has has that situation improved and you know is it is it something that as we've talked about because the nature of war is changing is it something that governments and defense uh in general are just going to struggle to keep up with and you know and, and even even if there is a i mean even if there is a war are they going to be able to gear up quickly enough to catch up quickly, you know, or to catch up fast enough, I guess, uh, to, to not be left entirely behind or vulnerable. Yeah. So there's definitely efforts happening with it. There's an increased uh, amount of participation from the users. So, you know, when you're building software, you know, you're bringing the users in, you're doing personas and stories and figuring out what sort of what that journey looks like. While that concept is, is sort of pretty simple for us building tech, um, That is a completely foreign language in defense. Uh, There's, you know, this entire group in the middle that is just supposed to magically know what everybody at the tactical level wants. Um, And you can understand how that happens, right? A PowerPoint slide gets sent probably through 63 different offices. A little bit of change is made. It's made smaller and less flexible and less flexible. And... You know, you asked for an iPhone first, and when it comes back, you get, you know, a 12-year-old IBM computer that, you know, runs MS-DOS. And they're like, hey, here you go. Yeah, but it's Uh, on wheels, so it's mobile. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But so now you've got got some actual user-centered design and innovation happening. And you've got sort of the actual system users and the generators of the requirement involved in the commerce. So areas like AFWorks. Uh, and like what Dr. Will Roper's working on and, you know, Hondo Gertz in the Navy. So there's efforts to do it. Um, and you need folks like that that are willing to push the envelope, that are willing to sort of thumb their nose at the institution and say, hey, this is the wrong way. I'm going to keep moving the right way until you just kick me off the game. Um, and I think that's got to continue to happen because just to give you an anecdote, like we were we were doing some research on. Uh, how do we on a software for a major defense weapon system, right? Like one of the top three or four and was doing, we went down and did interviews with the actual firing officers. Like, so the folks who were responsible for delivering the effects, literally pushing the button to understand what that process looked like. Instead of just the weapon system interface, they had two laptops next to it on either side. They had a grease pen and then to finish the kill chain, they had to move chairs twice to other computers. Yeah. <laughs> that, that faces that lap. That's exactly, we were like, wait, what? <laughs> uh, so that's the magnitude of the challenge is literally people are moving chairs and yeah. unable to share information or access information at their firing terminal. Yeah. Um, 
And then you ask about sort of catching up. I, I think, I hope, um, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't believe. Um, it will be hard. It will be a challenge. It will require letting go of a lot of, a lot of notions that you just alluded to about, about sort of security, right? If, if we lock up information and put it on a top secret network or a secret network, then nobody finds it. Information is only valuable if it's consumed and used to support a decision. If it's locked away somewhere in a vault, we've already removed all of the value from it. So what's the point in securing it? And the, the amount of information that moves right now, the latency on that value isn't what it used to be. It's not, hey, I have a secret. I can keep this locked up for years and years and years. That We're talking about seconds, minutes, hours, days, not months and years anymore on the value of a piece of information. Um, I think once we, once we get, get our mind wrapped around that a little, allow us to, to scale. Interesting in relation to what you were talking about earlier when you were discussing, will it take a war for this to change? I think we've all seen, and you know, we've seen it numerous times at Jane's that whenever there's urgent operational requirements, um, procurement processes go out of the window, right? And things can get purchased quickly and easily. And then as soon as that's over, it goes back to the previous system. And there may be good reasons for all of that, you know, without digging into to, to, to the details there. But um, what about it? So the, if, if there is a war situation, that's going to drive demand or change demand and the nature of demand. But is there anything on the supply side that will change this dynamic in the sense that is there going to ever be or do you foresee in the near term future a technological development that is going to change capability or, or offer such a great leap in capability for defense that it's just a no-brainer that they've got to go out and buy it there's no point actually trying to build it themselves they've got to they've got to switch how they're doing things because of the way that technological capabilities are changing whether 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 in the u.s or the, the west generally or, or from a competitor or adversary uh standpoint yeah um that's a, so I'm kind that's of really, guessing. Is there a game-changing tech coming along the? <laughs> yeah, along I, the I, think, I, th- I think there is. Um, so you know, I've spent far too many hours debating quantum to go back to Davy's sort of Schrodinger example. Um, but you start to think about like what quantum-resistant encryption and what the processing power of quantum allows you to do. Um, you know, that offers potentially a, a pretty significant breakthrough um, which which might actually solve some of the problems just by its sheer capability um, now that that area is something where everyone's always arguing on is it coming is it not is it worth it is it not um, and, I, and I recognize that I think the other the other side it's less a specific technology and more more sort of a a, a vertical or a subset on the right term for it um, is around real machine teaming where we can build trust and autonomy. Um, I think, or even, even just the appropriate level of trust. You know, if you had one manned fighter pilot and seven autonomous that were keyed and able to follow and they understood how to work together, or, you know, instead of 5,000 sailors on 20 different ships, you know, you had a few sailors and then you had an entire, you know, swarm following it, cable to key off it, things like that, where 
it starts to change sort of the, the human cost. And you think about the true cost of war, right? So much of it goes into personnel on training and readiness and then sort of the tail behind it all. Um, so decreasing the cost of that ramp up and really flattening sort of that acquisition kill chain where I can deploy swarms at scale. And if I lose half of them, that's great. I can throw out another hundred. That, that type of a, a transformation, I think really closes the gap. Um, but it comes, there, there's a ton of bias behind it, right? If it was easy, we'd already have done it. Um, there's security questions. There's the argument. I think the new Top Gun is probably going to have some of this in it, right? Is it, is it manned or unmanned? And what's the value of a pilot versus the value of a machine? Um, but all of that being said, if we're really talking about generating global effects at scale, we've got to let go of a human having to wrap its arms around from a control standpoint. That to me is the, the next big leap ahead. Yeah, Terry, to your question, I don't think there's a single piece of technology, a single technological innovation that is going to fundamentally drive everything forward. Now, quantum maybe in the same way that, that while, you know, nuclear weapons certainly changed the, the, the way in which we, we operate, but even with nuclear weapons, you know, it's still about the infantry on the front lines in Eastern Afghanistan, um, you know, actually doing work in the field. It didn't, it didn't found, it changed great power competition in some regards, but it didn't really change how war is fought. I think what's really going to change the way war is fought in, in, in a similar capacity is that teaming is going to be the direct integration between the man and the machine. And that's going to need to be not just, I know the big, the big push right now is around the, the hyper enabled uh, operator, but it's going to be the hyper enabled everything, you know, airman, marine, sailor, operator, whatever. It's going to need to be hyper enabled across the entire board with the capability to, um, to draw on, um, lots of different tools and lots of different capabilities in the same way you have a toolbox, but these are going to be, you know, tech tools, tech innovations. Um, and so I think that teaming element is where we're going to see the biggest shift in the coming few years. And it's going to be, yeah, everything from a single, um, you know, pilot. Um, on an aircraft who's directing, you know, 12 unmanned all the way down to, you know, the infantry officer with their fleet of robots, um, that they're, that they're sending out for a variety of, of close combat operations as well. And I think that's where, it, where it's going to be very interesting because the country that gets that right, that's where we suddenly move back into the asymmetric warfare capabilities, even within great powers, where yeah. the country that is able to effectively human machine team is able to you know, greatly close the kill chain much faster, um, as well as to accelerate the kill chain. And then at the same time, put fewer individuals in harm's way, thereby decreasing the human cost of war. And so I think that's going to be where, and in return, elevating the human cost of war as the, uh, on the opposition. Yep. So I think that's where we're, that's where we're headed. And I think that I don't, I don't, uh, to the point prior though, I don't know if we're going to see that effectively until we're forced to. In a in a in a combat um, or conflict um, setting. And what does all of that mean for intelligence in terms of what does it mean for the way intelligence is conducted and the way that's produced and the way it gets to those on the front line? You know, I mean, there's a whole lot of uh, things there that we've obviously talked about, and that's that's a huge topic in itself, in and of itself. But 
did you see that being as as affected by those same drivers or is there something independent going on in the intelligence field that means that actually that that's going to improve regardless of whether some of these other technologies come on come on stream i think in a similar vein where we sort of talk about the teaming from a more traditional sort of kinetic way um it's about effective teaming but in a slightly different way in the intelligence side Right. Because, you know, we've alluded to it a bunch during this conversation, just the sheer volume of data that's out there. Um, easy to result in information overload and the yeah, bias. Always, I, mean, I mean, I guess we're, we're only heading to a world where we're going to have more sensors, right? More sensors, yeah. more information coming in. You know, what happens with all of that? So and I I mean, I, I keep going back and Davey's heard me say it a thousand times. I keep going back to trust. Right. Because if you can get trust. The same way we talk about it from autonomous systems on, you know, kinetic capability. If we can get into trust in the fusion and the analytics behind sifting through all this big data, it allows us to move faster and to get to decision quicker. And it's only about context. And honestly, that context only matters at the point in time you're making that decision. So the ability to establish that trust where we can move at a relevant pace and we're willing to accept risk, right? There's, it's never going to be perfect. In my lifetime, we're never going to have perfect intelligence. I doubt we've ever had it before. <laughs> so the pursuit of that is is probably unnecessary. Uh, but if again, if we if we get comfortable with the fusion and trust in machines to do some, whatever the appropriate side of it is, and we're willing to let go a little bit because it's it's less about control and more about enabling the right person to make the right decision at the right time then I think we're in business. Now, again, that goes back to the same reason we buy giant planes and boats because it's it's easy and we understand it. We've got to get off just trying to grab a volume of information as a discriminator and, and get down to quality. Yeah, because, I mean, especially in a world where there's going to be so much more information. And, you know, and misinformation. Be better, yeah, and misinformation. But uh, while we might be better at processing it digitally, cognitively, that's where we're still going to lag, right? I mean, it's still going to be hard for in, in people working in intelligence analysts, et cetera, to, they're, they're still going to have the hard job of actually making sense of all of this. And like you said, the context, putting it in context at the speed at which we need to make decisions. And one more stump for, for sort of education and literacy, right? The, the one sort of side of the triangle we haven't really talked about yet is society. Those that elect and vote in and vote out sort of everybody who sets this. So if we're struggling to understand it on the intel and on the kinetic side, we've got to make sure that we're educating society on what all of this means because our struggle with information is only exponentially greater on the average citizen in society who's just being bombarded with noise. So that's where I think the the being able to separate signals from noise is critical. But AI is going to save us, right? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's selling that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely somebody cutting a check right now that believes that. Yes. <laughs> given that, given that Tyler and I spent about two years of our life learning how to hack and disrupt <laughs> artificial intelligence systems in a variety of operational contexts. I think we're both a little terrified of that. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, what, what does that do for the for the trust element? 
<laughs> when you know there's somebody cutting that check. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the downside, right? There's, there is going to be no panacea. There's no perfect tech. And we, the same way we've got to, we've got to accept potentially imperfect capabilities or imperfect information. We've got to recognize that artificial intelligence is, it's vulnerable. I mean, it's, it's as vulnerable as any other technology. I can trick a person. I can trick a computer. You know, we've already all seen it at all the conferences, just the, the public examples of, Hey, I've got a t-shirt that makes me not show up on facial recognition, or I put a sticker on a stop sign and fooled Tesla, right? That's the easy stuff. That's the, that's the sort of vanity. You know, I want to get some likes or some retweets or whatever it is now, you know, it's, that's not the real stuff. If that, if that's the vanity stuff and it's breaking multi-million dollar systems, what do we think is happening behind the scenes? One thing that just going back to the kind of the intelligence elementary that both you and Tyler talked about was the context. I am excited to see what what that looks like in um, in robotics as well. And so when I I talk about that, so so intelligence on on the battlefield, you know, um, there's, you know, the tactical, the operational, the strategic levels of the intelligence. But on the battlefield, you're looking at tactical intelligence and then obviously you, you pull that up to try to understand what's happening within robotics. You also have this added element of the supply chain of that. And so how do you start to disrupt and put in not just, you know, large scale bombings of weapons facilities? What additional targets suddenly are on the, the strategic list when it comes to disrupting a, an adversary's capability? And how do you more rapidly understand that in context when you see, you know, right now you see like a, a Russian weapon system, an S-400, um, you know, some big bulky piece of equipment. In the future, it could be a, a small bot or a, a individual robot who built it, who designed the software, who, what are the global supply chain elements that get affected yep. by that? And then your kill chain suddenly needs to be put into that context where, OK, if this is having an outsized capability on the battlefield, how do we suddenly start to disrupt this globally or how do we start to eliminate the adversary's capability? Because I have the feeling that um, in almost any country or I'd say in probably every country, there's never going to be a, a single fully intra-country supply chain for, for a piece of highly sophisticated technology equipment. And so that suddenly means that in order to disrupt these, what we're talking about, these human machine teamings, your disruption capabilities aren't just going to be firebombing Dresden. It's going to be disrupting a highly complex set of hardware capabilities, which will have spill on effects. It will mean disrupt uh, software development and their capabilities, which will have spill on effects of, you know, targeting civilian, um, you know, companies, you know, so yep. it, there's suddenly the context of human machine teaming spills globally and into society far faster than I think we're willing to admit right now when it comes to waging war against those capabilities, because it's not just shoot down the robot, it's disrupt your uh, adversary's capability to effectively deploy those robots in the battlefield, which is going to need to take both a societal and a global view. And that's where I think warfare looks very different because it greatly increases what is a legitimate target when it comes to intelligence collection. And then obviously, um, the, the action against that that intelligence. Yeah, I, you get into some of the supply chains. Remember the 
you know, the rare earth minerals and sort of all the arguments around, you know, one country's investments in a whole bunch of mines and another few countries not making investments and what that was going to mean. Um, so I think you, I mean, that's a really nice framing on, hey, how do we drive up cost and drive down speed of the ability to produce? And it goes right back into to sort of that whole, you know, we call it acquisition warfare here at Second Front, but that is the goal of it, right? How do we preserve the integrity of that chain for our friendlies, our partners, our peers, all of that? And how do we adversely impact that for adversaries? So whether that's information, right, whether that's a manufacturing capability, whether it's a subcomponent for additive manufacturing or, you know, you're looking at rare earth or you're looking at the human side of it. It's understanding sort of what is that actual supply chain and what are the critical paths, right? And it gets into a little bit of a consulting drill on what matters and what can you affect. Um, but we've got to understand that ourselves. And I don't, to keep going back to the, the sort of tech literacy and, and education, I don't know if we do, uh, if we understand what increased battery power means and where that comes from. If we understand sort of lighter sensors and different optical capabilities and SAR and all that, on what actually comes into that um, and how vulnerable it is, that's a great point. We've been trying to to kind of understand what that looks like at, at Jane's quite a bit, which is so you you pull in a piece of of you know intelligence content and that content has you know a name of a unit okay cool so a unit's pretty easy you have the orbats you have the commanders you have the capabilities and then the kind of the, the effective range but what happens when it comes to a piece of dual use technology what is the context for dual use technology look like and how does that suddenly play into the into the intelligence collection life cycle and <laughs> It's it's wild. I mean, you're looking at systems and subsystems and manufacturers and then also the the fact that, you know, what is it like 90, 90, 96 percent of everything is shipped on a boat at some point. So you're yep. looking at the global infrastructure that gets these components places. And so context balloons. But you have to have within context. That means you have to have at all times a global understanding of what those linkages are before you can start to make sense of things and and otherwise you're just collecting all this information but what is that global sophisticated map look like and it looks like you know or bats on steroids or or, or bats on crack extending out all over it, it, is, it gets, isn't that the name of our new product or bats on crack, yeah, uh, or bats on crack. Yeah. Sign, sign me up <laughs> no i think Davey, i mean you you guys get at it where what is dual use anymore, right? I could argue that everything's dual use and then by default, nothing's dual use. I've always argued that all technology applications are dual use because you can always any yeah. any bow and arrow. You can hunt, you can kill, you know, same with like the per first person to pick up a rock to make a beat, you know, yeah. banging, banging on another rock to make music. You know, they could also club someone to death with it. I mean, oh. you, make, you make a joke about the iPhone, right? Like. Drop a pin on something, and now your iPhone is a targeting device. Yep. Does, does well, that make my that telephone with, dual use? With, um, I think it was with some of the Islamic State actors who had stolen a piece of the ATAC code base. Well, not stolen, but found it on, on the internet, released on the internet. Um, and they were actually borrowed. able to use. Yeah, borrowed. <laughs> uh, they were able to use, you know, relatively global Android assault, uh, Android tactical assault kit. 
capabilities on their own devices mm. on the battlefield against coalition forces. Well, and that, and that, that I mean, that code was released, wasn't it, to allow sort of NGOs and and other actors like that. It was, I mean, it was released for benign benign reasons, mm-hmm. I believe, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I, I believe so. So rather than how... being leaked or hacked or whatever, I mean, it wasn't. Yeah. But but you're right. I mean, it's that it's taking something that's about the fact that they had it, I guess. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it was kind of benign. It was it was it was something that was put out there for a benign purpose, but then misused or or used for yeah nefarious purposes, which I guess is. Um, is at the heart of everything these days, right? I mean, you can take any, like you said, I mean, any everything and could be could be dual use. So it's, um, it, it, I guess it it comes down to, for me anyway, I, I think of all of that context that you've just described, Davey, and I'm thinking, as an intelligence analyst, how do I make sense of all of that, and how do I understand the significance of these developments? So if something you know, at a factory in Taiwan, what does that mean for the supply chain for these components that go into, you know, that's impossible for even a team of individuals to understand or even a, a division of intelligence analysts to understand without having the right the right technology available to help them condense all of that information, right? Yeah, I, I mean, think, uh, no, I, th- I think, you know, we talk about sort of that ecosystem, how everything's increasingly connected, how there are things that are commercial, inherently commercial, inherently military, and there's no longer sort of a, a line in between them. That's where it becomes critical having the ability to rapidly drill down into or to automate some of that drilling into um, and understanding each of those nodes and their capabilities. Because then it's the analyst's job to maybe you know, contextualize those capabilities and the operational scenario that they're dealing with, but not necessarily to have to go dig up what exactly are those. Hey, what is it? What does it do? You know, okay, I can use a little bit of the, you know, the human ingenuity to think about why would this matter in this scenario? Um, But the ability to have that information sort of at your fingertips to get you there faster shortens that OODA loop, uh, which in effect flattens a kill chain, which is good. To use all sorts of buzzwords in one answer. <laughs> I think the only one we haven't mentioned. Buddha today, loop, kill chain, <laughs> AI. The only one we haven't mentioned today is blockchain. I mean, you know, uh, it's <laughs> going to play a role somewhere, surely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll bite my tongue. Custody. Yeah, I'm like trying, to, trying to weave it in, and I, I don't even want to. No, don't make me do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Brilliant. This has been this has been a, a terrific discussion, guys. I really enjoyed this. Um, I realize we're up against kind of time, but uh, was there anything else that you thought actually, you know, you really wanted to add in or, or, or go back to or mention that you think, you know, would be of interest to our audience and uh, we should cover in this episode or, uh, you know, I'm conscious that there's probably a lot we could cover in other episodes. But, yeah, it'd be great to sort of have some final thoughts from you guys. You know, we, we, we went from kind of what the problems are in technology procurement to, you know, what is the actual situation between technology and the Department of Defense all the way into the kind of the future of war. And I think that kind of the really interesting thing is that we all kind of agree that, um, at least Tyler and I, Terry, Terry, we remained a little bit neutral, that they're barring or in, in without a a conflict and without a conflict that we admit is a conflict, we may not innovate fast enough and we, w- we might not actually be able to, to change these situations. And so what I think, though, that I, I really want to start exploring is how 
how do we in the community, you know, in, innovators and, and practitioners in the, you know, in the intelligence community at Jane's and in the, the national security community at, at Second Front with, with Tyler, how do we start to at least remove the barriers so that when that happens, as, as I believe it probably will, we are in a better position today than if we do nothing. And for for us on the Jane side, I think that that context piece, you know, how do we put these massive global supply chains and dual use technology and emerging capabilities, how do we start to put them in a, in a heuristic and in a taxonomy such that we can close that kill chain faster when there is a threat resultant from uh, those capabilities? And how do we better integrate uh, the massive sources of disparate, unstructured and semi-structured OSINT out there and then be able to put that against against that context? And so I think that's our challenge is is how do you is how do you put something that is as complex as a dual use capability in a usable, actionable intelligence context on an ongoing basis that when a conflict comes, we're able to act against it. And I think that's going to if we can solve that, then I think we we have um, kind of done our done the best job we can, uh, barring. Um, purely operational um, acquisitions where, hey, we just need to throw money against the problem because we have a true risk. Yeah, it's a good answer. So I, I was I was going to talk about so many questions or scenarios that sort of I'm faced with have to do with like, how do I bridge the gap between emerging technology and national security? And it's usually sort of containerized down at like the Silicon Valley to D.C. level. I think we've got to sort of expand our framing of that problem. And think about what a partnerships and what a jointly developed technology start to look like in the future. And how are we building things that will allow everything sort of Davey's gotten on everything we've talked about today, but not just across, you know, a U.S. built or a U.K. built or an Australian built platform, but across all of them simultaneously. And we start to think about true situational awareness because none of us go to war alone. Right. None of us, none of us, none of the Intel communities are working in silos, you know, without working with international partner. So I think that's where we've got some, some really interesting opportunities. So one, from a policy standpoint, think about sort of what does control look like there? But two, when we think about where there's really fantastic opportunities for commercial technology to scale, I think it is in some of those platforms and information sharing capabilities that will allow and sort of set the foundation for what Davey's talking to um, and allow for sort of global context across all of our partners simultaneously, uh, which would be pretty transformative. Yeah, I think there's an entire episode, if not more, we could talk about that interoperability element, because that for me strikes that strikes me as being a really key thing, because yeah. otherwise, if everyone just keeps doing it in their own silos, you know, there's we're only going to compound our problems. <laughs> 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 this has been this has been a great discussion guys i've really enjoyed it um this is you know giving me a lot of brain food and uh, i'll go away and have a, a, a lot to think about after this i'm sure everyone listening will do so thanks again for the time in joining us and um i hope we can follow up on some of these discussions and, and delve into some of these subjects in more detail at other times but davy always great to talk to you and tyler thanks for taking the time out to come and join us on the podcast absolutely thanks for having me guys this was a fantastic conversation 